As researchers studying conspiracy theories, we spend a lot of time staring up to the stars and speculating on the mysteries, dangers, and hidden wonders that are concealed in the great expanse of outer space. However, we shouldn't forget that there is another realm that is almost as unknown to us that is also much closer to us, the deep sea. It's a cliché, although an accurate one, that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the deep ocean, partly because there's so much more to be known. And what if one of the things to be known is that there are monsters down there? Massive, tentacled terrors that could drown a whale or wreck a ship. On today's episode, we take a deep dive into the ocean to look for the Kraken. This is all a test. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me as always is my buddy, Nathan Radke. Hey, Nathan. Hello. Today, I think we're doing something somewhat humbling, Nathan. We're, we're looking at the limits of our understanding of the world and our confidence. Is that right? Well, this is an idea that we've discussed in great detail in other episodes. We've talked about it in lectures. We've done public talks on it. There's a danger in certainty. The problem is this. When we become certain about a position, we stop investigating it. I mean, after all, what's the point? If we've already solved a mystery, why would we waste more resources on continuing to solve it? But this is a problem then, because things like tunnel vision then come into our reasoning. Things like confirmation bias. When we think we know the truth, because what we see is affected to such a high degree by what we think, if we think we know something, that's going to be all we see. And there's two very different ways that we can get trapped in certainty. One of them is very famous. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Basically, it's when we don't know enough about something to realize how much there is that we don't know about. And so then we assume that there isn't much to know, and therefore the small amount that we know we know, we think is most of what there is to know, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. Yeah, and this is pretty common, although surely this won't happen to us, being as well-educated as we are. We're not going to fall into this kind of ignorance trap. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because it turns out, and there's actual, there are studies that suggest this, like psychological studies that suggest this, that the more educated you are, the more likely you are to commit these kinds of errors because you are certain that you already know. And often you believe that your expertise in your limited area bleeds into all these other areas. And that is, in fact, not true. If you're an expert in internal medicine, you are indeed the person to go to if you, know, you have a question about something going wrong with your heart or whatever. But that does not mean that you are any smarter than anybody else when it comes to questions of politics, when it comes to questions of history, and in fact does not bleed into other areas. Now, uh, going way back to podcast number one, Holy moly. we talked about Project Stargate. There was the, um, the Stanford Research Institute was headed by two very well-known scientists who were taken in by a stage magician named Jerry Geller. And these two scientists simply did not 
believe that they were being taken in. They were absolutely certain that their expertise in physics was going to shield them from being a mark for con artists. Now, the magician James Randi, or the amazing Randi, did a whole, wrote a whole book on Yuri Geller, really hates, hates him quite deeply, and talked about precisely this problem, precisely how these two scientists believe that their uh, specific education shielded them from making more general thinking errors. And so, yeah, it turns out not only are educated people actually are more liable to make errors. They believe in their education too much. And this is something that we might call the expertise trap. When we become acknowledged experts in our area, there's always the possibility that we start to believe our own press. And this is something that I, I worry about. When I go on the radio, uh, I'll listen to them introduce me, and they'll introduce me as he's an expert in this, an expert in that. And the danger is I'll, I'll listen to that introduction and I think, yeah, I am an expert in these things. I am really smart. SMRT. But when, that ha <laughs> when this happens, when we think we are SMRT, our outlook can narrow. We become heavily invested in our reputations and we become increasingly reluctant to admit that we're wrong. And then we start dismissing people with less experience and reputation than us. So ideally, we should learn enough about a topic to know how little we know about it so we don't fall into the Dunning-Kruger effect but not so much that we become complacent and fall into the expertise trap. I think I'm currently in the sweet spot for the UFO phenomenon, since I've been studying it for a decade, and I think I know less now than when I started. That, that's, that's, a, that's a profound statement, actually. I think I know less than when I started. You're absolutely right. Like, some of learning is about unlearning the superstition, the assumptions that we are dragging along with us, but we haven't ever really investigated so um, ideally, uh, if I live to like 80, then by the time I am 80, I'll know absolutely nothing at all, and then I'll be ready to start learning. So this is Socrates' point, right? He was the smartest person in Athens because he knew that he didn't know anything, unlike everybody else who thought that they knew something. See, um, I, I still have the sneaking suspicion that I know something, so I'm not there yet. I mean, I think, I think you're, 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 you're being funny, but on the other hand, also actually um, making another very serious point, which is I think this is a project. It's not an identity. It's not something that we just claim for ourselves as being people who know nothing, <laughs> but rather it's a project of constantly investigating your own assumptions and beliefs. I'm absolutely certain that in 10 years from now, I will not believe some of the things that I believe now. I know this is true, and yet at this very moment, I don't know what those things are going to be where I change my mind. It's going to be through this process of investigation and self-reflection and just experiencing the world. So I think you're right. I think, it, I think this is a process. Now, just... I wanted to, because I feel like the moment is slipping for me to bring up some European Enlightenment philosophy, which I never do on this podcast. Oh and I want to give myself another pat on the back for, for almost never mentioning Immanuel Kant on this podcast. But, but um, Immanuel Kant, German philosopher, uh, made exactly this point when he talked about two barriers to investigation. And he said there's, there's one barrier is skepticism and the other one is dogmatism. And what he meant by skepticism is this radical kind of skepticism where you're like, there's nothing to know. There's nothing to know out there. 
You can't know the world. It's Everything's just unknowable. Garbage. Everything's, Everything's nonsense. Bullshit. Exactly. Now, if you start with that kind of psychological disposition, learning is an almost impossible task. But he says the other extreme is just as dangerous, which is what Nathan was talking about, and that's dogmatism. If you think you already have the answer, you don't need to learn anything because you already know. So, so the two barriers to rational inquiry are on the one hand, there is nothing to know. And on the other hand, I already know everything. So why are we starting with all of this epistemology? I think there's a couple yeah, reasons. Why? One is because we have been out of the classroom for a long time now because we've been in a pandemic lockdown for 20 months, and so we've missed lecturing on philosophy. We, we, we got to do epistemology to somebody. I mean, you just mentioned Immanuel Kant. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We lost half our future listeners by yeah. me doing that. Including so. me. I mean, I, I appreciate his epistemology, but I can't stand his ethics. But the reason that we're talking about all of this, this knowledge stuff is because today we're looking at a cryptid. Cryptids being animals that aren't acknowledged by mainstream science. And we've done yeah. cryptids before. And Lee, you caught some flack from a listener, a certain DW, for your study of Bigfoot, since D-Dub said it was an absurd thing to believe in. Yeah, and I would have agreed with him before I did my own research on it. This was, uh, for me, one of just those eye-opening moments where I came into the discussion thinking I already had the answer. I was a dogmatist, you know. I knew what the truth was, which is that Bigfoot BS, and I just was going to do the research essentially to prove that I was already right all along. And while I didn't fully change my mind, I still don't believe that Bigfoot exists. I mean, if I had to choose between existing or non-existing, I choose I don't believe in Bigfoot. However, it was a very humbling process for me because I realized that actually I had been basing my certainty on what amounted to essentially superstition. I had not done any serious investigation of it. And when I did, I was surprised to find that there are serious scientists like Jane Goodall, who, who held open the possibility of Bigfoot, that logically that bio biologically, uh, there was nothing standing in the way of something like this existing. And so, yeah, I, was, I found it for me a really humbling experience to discover that I had a complete, a, a, a very sure conviction of something that I should not have been sure about. Yeah, I mean, we didn't end up asserting that there was such a thing as Bigfoot. As I recall, we ended up concluding that it was unlikely that a breeding population of large omnivorous mammals could exist in a, in a rapidly shrinking wilderness in the Pacific Northwest without finding out about it. But what you were doing was just taking the idea seriously and seeing where the evidence led you. Yeah. So it's like, again, like I thought I knew what I was talking about and I had no idea. Yeah, we never, we never do. But the issue, I do sort of know this, the issue that we had with Bigfoot, that there isn't enough forest left to hide in, is the same issue we had with another cryptid, the Loch Ness Monster. There isn't enough lock to right. conceal a sea monster. Yeah. But you know where we don't have that problem? The ocean. The, the ocean's pretty big. It's massive. You could easily hide a breeding population of monsters in the depths of the ocean. It covers 71% of the Earth's surface. And because the ocean is deep as well as wide, it's a three-dimensional environment. That means there's even more places for monsters to lurk. So are there monsters lurking there? In particular, 
Is there a terrifying many-armed creature that could drag a ship to its watery grave? Is there a Kraken? Well, I was just going to say, as a visual image, what I'm thinking of, if you've ever seen those old-timey maps, there's in the ocean sometimes, there's a monster depicted there. Now, sometimes it's like a dragon-type monster, but sometimes it's like this octopusy squid, multi-armed thing. And so, yeah, so so we're looking for those monsters in the map in the in the that that we've seen in those ancient maps, right? Here be monsters. Yeah. In the books of Job and Psalms from the Old Testament in the Bible, there's a reference to a terrible sea monster called the Leviathan, a sea serpent with many limbs. Homer mentioned a beast called the Scylla in the voyage of Odysseus. She has 12 feet all dangling down, six long necks with a grisly head on each of them, and each head a triple row of crowded and close-set teeth, fraught with black death. Squid monster. In a, in a Norse manuscript from around 1250 CE, the author describes a creature large enough to be mistaken for a small island, an idea that's revisited in Norse sagas from the same era. Uh, the famed Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, like one of the most famous botanists of all time, who basically invents the, the life categorical system, he included the kraken in his Systema Naturae list of all known creatures. Uh, the Danish naturalist Erik Pontopidan Pontopidin, one of those, wrote in 1752 that it is said that if it were to lay hold of the largest man of war, which is a warship, they would pull it to the bottom. And he also stressed the immense size of the creature's eyes, the diameter of dinner plates. So, I mean, there seems to be like a lot of historical momentum behind the idea that there's some kind of giant, monstrous, many-armed thing in the ocean. If we're going to use that as a type of evidence, do we have to then also open the door for the possibility of things like dragons? I mean, I just think one of the arguments about dragons is that you see them pop up in all these different cultures and their mythology. So like these ancient cultures where, you know, trade or some kind of interaction would have been sparse at best nonetheless have like very developed senses of these mystical, magical beings that are, you know, remarkably similar to each other. You have dragons mentioned in Chinese ancient mythology, in various different European ancient mythologies, surely in other mythology. I mean, obviously, I don't know all of all world mythologies, but it's one of those remarkable moments where it's like, oh, this is, that could count as a type of evidence. Now, what else would we need, though? Because, because what I worry about with you starting that way is this opens the door to a lot of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that then maybe gets picked up by some other thinker later on. Can we hang our hat on this? Yeah, and I mean, even something like the dragon, which is so well entrenched in so many different cultures, we could also think of some reasons why that would be the case that wouldn't involve the existence of dragons. Because one of the other things that would almost certainly happen in all of those other cultures in different parts of the world would be people coming across, say, fossils of dinosaurs. And if you come across a fossil of a dinosaur, like you're going to jump to some kind of giant dragony creature very quickly because they were giant dragony creatures. So, yeah, just because we have a lot of mythology about something doesn't necessarily mean that 
it's based on a truth, especially because mythology is so sort of shrouded in, in metaphor and tall tales. The other thing is, I think that I'm not a fair judge of evidence necessarily for the Kraken, because I'm hoping that the Kraken exists. All of the descriptions are of a massive many-armed creature, and it's the many arms that gets me interested, since that sounds like it's describing an enormous cephalopod. And cephalopods are my favorite. They are amongst the most interesting animals on Earth. They're mollusks, but most mollusks, like snails and clams or whatever, they've devoted their time and energy into hiding in shells. But the cephalopods have mostly shed their shells, and they're out here in these oceans absolutely getting it done. I mean, the octopus. You know, you might not know this about me, Lee, but I enjoy talking about Cold War airplanes. Ha <laughs> ha! Do tell, Nathan. But something that I enjoy talking about more than Cold War airplanes is the octopus. They're extremely intelligent. They can recognize individual human faces. They hold grudges against specific people. They use tools. They learn from observing. They imitate other animals. I mean, in aquariums, the staff tend to only give nicknames to mammals and some birds, since for the most part, only mammals and some birds have individual personalities. But aquarium staff always name octopus, since everyone is a little different. That's why you shouldn't eat them. Cuttlefish, another cephalopod, also extremely intelligent. And also, everybody listening to this should go do an internet video search for, quote, flamboyant cuttlefish, end quote, the next time you're feeling a little down. And I'll say ahead of time, you are welcome. And then there's squids. <laughs> if squids, like... If octopus are the nerds of the cephalopod world, and cuttlefish are the artists, then squids are the jocks. They're strong, they're fast, they're maybe not as smart, but they still got something going on. So the whole cephalod family is fascinating to me. And if the kraken is the largest member of that family, I want to learn about it. So what is the kraken? Like, where, where, where does this thing supposedly live? Uh, where did we really hear about it? I mean, when you're talking about the Bible, are they talking about the Kraken? I mean, the Bible, so, it's hard so to say. Me... The Leviathan, it's so easily interpreted as a bunch of different things. But as we move forward in history, I think the Kraken starts to form a more cohesive shape. And where is that? And when is that? So like in the 19th century, sailors are returning from ocean voyages with tall tales of many armed monsters again. In 1848, Captain Peter McQuay of the HMS Daedalus claimed to have seen a 60-foot-long sea monster off the Cape of Good Hope. Eerily, the captain asserted that the creature somehow moved through the water without using any of its limbs to propel itself. And it was at, at this point that some modern scientists started getting in on the action. Uh, there was one guy, Sir Richard Owen, one of the most acclaimed biologists of the time. This was the guy who coined the word dinosaur, so this guy is a heavy hitter. Well, Sir Owen publicly implied in the London Times that Captain McQuay was a liar or a fool, or maybe both. But think back to what we talked about about expertise earlier, because here's Owen's reasoning. Since Owen didn't know about any giant monster, and since Owen was the expert, therefore no giant monster must exist. Because if there was one, surely Owen as the expert would know about it. Owen had created an entire zoological framework, and there was no place in it for sea monsters. Instead, Sir Owen argued that Captain McQuay had probably just seen a seal and concluded, A larger body of evidence from eyewitnesses might be got together in proof of ghosts than of the sea serpent. 
McQuay replied in the Times, since uh, before Twitter, people used to have flame wars in the newspaper, and said, I adhere to the statement as to form, color, and dimensions contained in my official report to the Admiralty, and I leave them as data, whereupon the learned and scientific may exercise the pleasures of imagination, until some more fortunate opportunity shall occur of making a closer acquaintance with the great unknown, in the present instance, assuredly, no ghost. You know, that's not how I imagine sea captains talking, i got to say. <laughs> there are some refined sea captains, I think. Clearly. Um, on the one hand, we don't want to just blindly rely on experts. But on the other hand, we all need to outsource our reasoning about most things. There are too many things for me to reason about. And so I outsource medical things to doctors. Because, you know, I don't have time to get a medical degree. And then even if I were able to get one, you know, there's all these different branches of medicine. Forget it. I'm going to outsource that to doctors. I'm going to outsource the astronomy stuff to astronomers. I mean, isn't this kind of what we always talk about as a critical thinking skill is to use expert analysis on the subject? How is then somebody supposed to take this advice from this show and the other advice from other shows and weigh the difference. You know, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of unfair because we come in knowing what the truth is in, in some of these things. And we can say, well, you should listen to experts when they say the truth and you should not listen to experts when they're wrong. But how does one know? How does one actually then evaluate the role of experts here? Is this a challenge to the role of experts? I would say that the way you evaluate expertise is the method through which that expertise is developed. Now, in the case of Sir Owen, I think there was an issue here where he was believing his own press, and he had gotten to that kind of arrogant stage, which can happen to people, where they think, if I don't know about this, it must not exist. And this is the danger of something like Occam's razor, which we use fairly frequently, this idea that you shouldn't multiply entities beyond necessity. Like if you have a, a complicated explanation and you have a more simple explanation that's based on what we already know, Occam's razor says you should lean towards the simple one that's based on what you already know to be true. But we should always have that, we should always have that capacity, that humility to say, or maybe there are things that we just don't understand. And I, so I think that this is a situation where it isn't a scientific method that's being attacked here. It's particularly Sir Owen's abandonment of the scientific method and replacing the scientific method with a more sort of personal-based, you know, this is my reputation, therefore I must be correct. Because when experts move away from things like observation and scientific method and humility, and move towards certainty, like that's maybe expertise that we should start to question a little bit. Experts can simply also be wrong, sure. which is why we prefer to rely on communities of experts. Yeah, exactly. Because then we're getting away from individual people and towards methods and towards processes, towards empiricism, towards a scientific method, because we're not attacking the scientific method here. We're just saying that this particular guy, Sir Owen, wasn't using the scientific method as rigorously as he should have been, maybe in part because he was believing his own press. Was he right? 
Well, here's the thing. Many whalers started coming back from voyages, claiming there was some kind of enormous squid that would sometimes attack their ship. They would haul in sperm whales, and sperm whales are massive, huge. They are the world's, one of the world's largest predators. And they'd bring in these sperm whales that would have large gashes and scars running along their sides, as if they had been in a battle with something strong and vicious. And despite being dismissed by a lot of contemporary biologists like Sir Owen, these stories started showing up in contemporary works of fiction. Um, Melville's Moby Dick from 1851, which described the most wondrous phenomenon which the secret seas have hitherto revealed to mankind, a vast pulpy mess, furlongs in length and breadth, curling and twisting like a nest of anacondas. In 1870, Jules Verne's famous sci-fi novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea featured a pitched battle between the crew of the submarine Nautilus and a many-armed horror. But then, in 1873, off the coast of Newfoundland, there were two fishermen named Picot and Squires, and they were rowing through Conception Bay when they encountered something that they first thought was wreckage from a ship. Uh, they moved closer to see if there was anything they could salvage and realized that it was an animal. They poked it with a stick, because what else are you going to do? And it reared up and grabbed hold of their skiff with arms and tentacles while its massive beak started tearing away at the wood. Picot grabbed an axe and started hacking at the tentacles, cutting the ends of them off and causing the creature to swim away, leaving behind gallons of dark ink. Now, when they get back to the pub, they tell their story. And this is sort of classic, right? Fishermen come back and they tell their tall stories and yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the size of the fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The kind of thing that happens as long as people have been going out to sea. But this story was a little different from the usual tall tales since Picot had kept one of the tentacles he had cut off, and it was 19 feet long. Whoa! It's a long tentacle. 19 that was just feet 19 tentacle. feet long. Then that's just the bit he cut off. So at this oh. point, the scientific community is like, well, okay, we can no longer deny the existence of some kind of giant cephalopod, and the giant squid was given an official scientific designation. Architeuthis ducks, that's the scientific name, and it gets to join the kingdom of officially recognized animals. Which raises a question when it comes to cryptids. Cryptids is a, the, the study of, like, weird hidden monsters. Once something is acknowledged, is it still considered a monster? A giant squid with a 19-foot-long tentacle, is that a monster, or is it simply another one of the animals? What makes a monster? Hmm. Um, I guess I, I was not prepared for this question, so I'm going to just go off the cuff here. I guess monster... Uh, has something to do with my own relationship to the thing. And, and I, I feel like it's, it's predicated to some extent on my fear. Like things are monsters if I am afraid of them. And usually then also like kind of big and unrelatable. You know, I mean, that's one of the things I find about a lot of sea creatures is that they are difficult to relate to in a way that other mammals are not difficult to relate to. And I feel like I kind of get my dog. Like my dog is a lot like me, but like doesn't speak and doesn't have opposable thumbs and a lot of hair. But I don't get that sense from sea creatures. Like when I see a sea creature, especially these kind of deep sea things, I feel like I'm sort of looking at an alien. There's very little connection there. So I guess a monster is me being afraid of things I don't relate to very well. Right, so then I guess monster isn't really a classification. It's more of a description of our relationship to it. If I'm out, especially in a small seafaring vessel, 
and I see some 50, 60, 70 foot thing uh, under the water, that is going to scare the living daylights out of me. And I'm going to be having a kind of monster relationship with this as opposed to an objective, scientific, taxonomic kind of, oh, look, there's a giant cephalopod. So if you saw, say, a blue whale surface, as giant as that is, you would say, oh, there's a giant animal. But if you saw something more squid-like, because it's it's further from your understanding, that that removal from your understanding turns it into a monster, even though it's just another part of the animal kingdom. Yes. And, and, and you know what? This is a pretty terrifying conversation. I don't know why, but I'm like imagining myself face to face with some kind this sea creature out in the ocean. It would be truly terrifying. And as you say, alien. And we need to talk about what's going on in the deep sea, because there's something okay. that I think is going to make you alarmed. And it's the concept of deep sea gigantism. There's a lot of, oh. there's a lot of really weird things in the ocean depths that are a lot bigger than we're used to and a lot bigger than we would think that they should be. I'll give you an example from your garden. Uh, you're a big gardener. You I love, am. You love being out there. You're very comfortable in your garden. One of the things yes. you probably come across in your garden are roly-polies. What are roly-polies? Uh, I do not know this. Like pill bugs, potato bugs. They're the, the bugs oh, okay. when you poke them and then they roll up into a little ball. Right. Got it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. How adorable are those guys? Okay, you know, like as a gardener, I do get kind of irritated by pests, so I, I, I don't find them that adorable. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're not the kind of things I, I, I would find myself running away from. No, because they're like maybe half an inch long at their biggest. Yeah. Well, okay. they have some of those at the bottom of the ocean. Same family, same basic okay. animal, but they're not okay. half an inch long. They're like okay. two feet long. Whoa. Two foot roly-polies. Whoa. Okay. And yeah, that I would run away from. Yeah, yeah, that I'd totally run away from. A Japanese spider crab lives at the bottom of the ocean, 12 okay. feet from claw to claw. Wow. Uh, there's what, What's going on? Is there is there a mechanism here? Is it like the high pressure or something like that? Do we know this? Well, there, there's a bunch of reasons why things, or there's a bunch of reasons why we speculate that things in the deep sea are getting giant. Like the giant oarfish is 36 feet long. There's something called giant sea spiders, which I won't get into even. So there's, there's a couple you. of reasons why at the, at the bottom of the ocean, things are getting huge. Uh, this, this almost seems counterintuitive, but food scarcity is one of the reasons that things would get huge. Larger bodies are more efficient, which means that you can gorge on food when it's available, and then you can live off reserves until the next meal happens to come by. Also, because there's less stuff down there, there's reduced competition. And you can see this on land, too. If you have sort of an isolated area, you see gigantism the tortoises of the Galapagos or the lizards of the Komodo Islands with reduced competition, it allows creatures to become giant. And this is, we know happened happening to squids in the deep sea. They are getting giant. So let's talk about the giant squid for a second. Like we've moved now from legend to just science at this point, the giant squid lives in the deep ocean grows at least 43 feet long including the feeding tentacles. Can I just ask for some metric conversions? Uh, just because we've got audience in different places. And I always, that's something that always bugs me when I'm listening to my British podcasts is they leave things in feet and miles. Right. Well, in metrics, we it would metric be like stuff. a school bus and a half. Thank you. Oh, that's, that's even better than a metric uh, conversion. It's just like an object conversion. Yeah, in school buses. 
Okay, uh, good. They, they weigh about 600 pounds or about, Gosh. about four of you, if I'm doing my math hey. correctly. Hey! Is that right? <laughs> Wait, am I, am I offended? I'm not sure. Wait, what's 600 divided by four? <laughs> Oh, wait. No, I think I'm okay. No, if anything, I think I've understated how much you weigh. No, I, yeah, I think I've offended it the other way now. <laughs> yeah. You're not that tiny. They weigh about 600 pounds or... I don't know. What, what's what's that in what kilograms? Pounds? I don't know. Um, Some amount of kilograms. Okay, fine. Fine. Forget, forget metric conversions. It's heavy. It's big. Now, they have eight arms, or in metric, eight... Uh, two feeding tentacles with suckers at the tips that draw its prey towards its parrot-like beak, where it bites off chunks of whatever it's eating, and then those chunks then get ground up by the squid's toothed tongue so that it can swallow. Because one of the amazing things about squids is their esophagus goes through its brain. So if it, it, it can't swallow anything big because it has to fit through its brain to get to its stomach. See, this is what I'm talking about with alien. You and, know, like a tooth tongue that swallows through a brain. And it's even That's, worse than that because its brain is distributed throughout its tentacles. I'm very impressed, though, too. Like, it's, it's kind of cool. Cephalopods are great. They're preyed on by so sperm on. whales. That, 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 uh, that, that sailor then cut off a piece of its brain. Yeah. And in fact, Does after it, he cut off that tentacle, that tentacle would have continued, like, acting for a while. And, and does it regrow in the... Uh, and, and the giant squid that had its tentacle cut off, does that tentacle regrow? This, we don't know enough about giant squids to know if that's the case, okay. but we do know it's true of octopus. Like if an octopus loses its arm, it can regrow that arm. So it's entirely possible that the giant squid wow. can regrow. So they're preyed on by sperm whales, which appear to be the only thing in the ocean that are large enough to eat a healthy adult giant squid. These things are huge, but they're not the biggest squid. There's a bigger squid. The, Seriously? The colossal squid. Now, so hold on a second. How do we know what it was that the seafarers were seeing? Well, were they... because of the location. Because the thing about the colossal okay, squid okay. is they live in the deep Antarctic Ocean. Uh, like giant okay. squids are all over the oceans, but colossal squids appear to maybe only live in the deep Antarctic Ocean. Now, these guys are at least 46 feet long, but they weigh 1,500 pounds. This is this is entering territory where I'm I can't even conceptualize it. Yeah, I mean I mean this is there the colossal squid is this is it's huge, it's terrifying, it has a much larger body than the giant squid. Its its arms and tentacles are a little shorter. But this is the best part of the colossal squid. All of its arms have suckers on it, like a lot of cephalopods, but these suckers have vicious swiveling hooks attached to them. So if one of them grabs you, you're then covered with Sticky, swiveling, razor blade hooks. Wow. The ocean wants to kill you. I'm fully going to have nightmares tonight. So then we can ask the question, okay, all these Kraken stories, were people just talking about giant squids? Well, if that was the case, then we would have to find evidence that giant squids do occasionally attack people in the ocean. I went through a bunch of old newspapers. In the July 4th, 1874 edition of the London Times, there's a story about a steamer the Strathowen, and it was bound for India when it came across a small 140-ton sailboat named the Pearl. Now, according to the account in the paper, there was a strange object in the water that was moving in a weird way. So the captain of the Strathowen took a shot at it with a rifle. Because what else would you do? And this thing reared up out of the water and attacked the Pearl. 
Apparently, two sailors were grabbed by the monster's arms and crushed, and the pearl was capsized and sunk. The other sailors were then picked up by the Strathowen. But despite being in the London Times, there's no such ship as the Strathowen mentioned in the records of Lloyd's Register, in Shipping Lines, the National Maritime Museum, so it seems likely that this story probably isn't accurate. Oh, because you know what I was thinking when you were talking about that is how frustrating must that be? If you're the captain, you've lost two sailors, and you come back and nobody believes you. Yeah. I mean, if something like that really went down, could you imagine what that would be like to have everybody just dismiss you as some old crank who, you know, is trying to get attention at the bar? Yeah, so it'd be super frustrating. Well, and this is, I mean, this is something that we come across so often when people have encounters with something that we would consider supernatural or unusual, the quality of their life almost always declines because they're almost always considered to be cranks. I'll give you a story that is accurate to make up for the last one. In the early 1930s, a 15,000-ton Norwegian tanker named the Brunswick was attacked three times by giant squids. None of the attacks posed any danger to the ship, but it's still kind of interesting because most scientific reports state that the giant squid wouldn't go after something as large as a whale, since its mortal enemy is the sperm whale. It's always been assumed that sperm whales are eating squids, not the other way around. But if giant squids were attacking this ship, that seems to indicate that they are sometimes willing to go after extremely large prey, and maybe they're a little bit more aggressive than we had been led to believe. Is there any evidence for cooperation? Like, would two or more squids go after a big sperm whale that, um, and I don't really know much about whales, but I think they they go in uh, uh, flocks, what are they called? A, Pods. Um, pod? Pod. There a we are. Pod of whales. A pod of whales. So let's say one of them has become separated or whatever. Well, there's, interestingly, despite their intelligence, we don't see much evidence of cephalopods cooperating with each other. What's even mm-hmm. more bizarre is we do see evidence of cephalopods cooperating with other species. Like there are octopus, for example, which will make friends with a big grouper, a fish, and then the two of them will go hunting together. And then the octopus, if it sees a fish go into a crack, it'll wave to the grouper and bring it over. Then the octopus goes into the crack, flushes the fish out, and then the grouper eats it once it gets out. Octopus really are so cool. No, they're like, so they, cool. I could do an like entire series of podcasts on octopus. I, I, I kind of want one as a pet. I just can't figure out how to do it. But, but there's um, something very tragic about the octopus as well. Mm. They do not live very long. Oh. Like a year, two years. That's it. Really? That's it? That's it? Yeah, they spend two years frantically growing and learning. And then they breed and then they give, they lay eggs and then they're done. Wow. Heartbreaking. Even the big ones? Because there's some big octopus. There, there's some, I mean, the giant Pacific octopus maybe gets a couple years in, but still not much. Okay. They live furiously and brilliantly, but briefly. Huh. So here's another story of a giant squid attack. I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad we nonetheless managed to bump people out on our feel-good episode. On the, right? Because we inserted this around this time of year because we're like... It's a you festive know, time of they, year. Yeah, Nathan, we've been we've been such a bummer for the last six months with just one down story after another. So I'm, I'm glad to see we're on form to nonetheless bring some sorrow and misery. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> that's our that's our wheelhouse. So here's another story of a giant squid attack. 1941, World War II. 
The troop ship Britannia was sunk by German raiders in the South Atlantic. The event was reported in the London Illustrated News, and unlike the Strathoen that we talked about earlier, we do have plenty of evidence that the Britannia both existed and was sunk by a German ship. We even know who sunk it. It was the Thor, which was a former fruit transport that had been transformed into a secret cruiser by the German Navy. It would sail around looking like a typical cargo ship flying the flag of a neutral country, but once it gets close to you, they raise the German flag, take the covers off their guns, and start peppering you with explosive shells. So this is exactly what happened to the Britannia. According to the captain of the Thor, Otto Koller, they had assumed that the Britannia had radioed for help, so rather than stick around to pick up the survivors, the Thor steamed away. This meant that the survivors were floating around in the ocean for a long time. Interestingly, Captain Collar ended up surviving the war and was apparently horrified to learn what happened to the crew of the Britannia after he left. Because, according to Britannia crewman Lieutenant Cox, what happened was that one night, as the men clung to a small life raft, a tentacle emerged from the water, grabbed one of the men, crushed him, and dragged him under the water to his death. Another tentacle reached up and grabbed Lieutenant Cox by the leg, but he was able to get free, although he was scarred afterwards. The rest of the survivors were at sea for 23 days before they were rescued. That is so nightmarish. Yeah, that is like, that is full-on horror movie stuff. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. 100%, you're just lying there, floating in the ocean, running out of food, Which running out of water. Enough. And then Which is bad enough, right? And then a tentacle comes up and just grabs one of you and takes you to its, its beak to be ground up by your tooth tongue. Uh, and swallowed through a brain. And swallowed through its brain. But I've got good news for you on this one. Because here's the thing. <laughs> Lieutenant Cox, who this entire story is sort of relying on, he also stated that another man had his legs bitten off by a shark and was then eaten by a giant manta ray. And at that point, I'm like, wait a second. I mean, manta yeah, rays okay. are huge. Manta rays are enormous. But they're also filter feeders that eat plankton. And okay. Lieutenant Cox also told reporters that he was stung by an octopus, which caused all of his hair to fall out, which seems more unlikely. How long were they floating around for? 23 days? 23 days. days. Could, could, I mean, could some of this just be like legit hallucinations? I think legit hallucinations and the genuine horror of what was happening. Octopus don't sting. They're not open ocean animals. And octopus bites don't cause premature balding. That sounds <laughs> more like it was a Portuguese man of war that he maybe got tangled in. That would make some sense. So some of this story is, is true, but Lieutenant Cox's account doesn't appear to be a good description of what happened. Again, okay. we bump into this problem with the ocean that, like, tails get taller out at sea. But here's the money shot. There may be a more recent event that does make me wonder if there might be more monstrous squids lurking in the ocean. Because 1978, the destroyer USS Stein was on patrol in the Pacific when her sonar equipment stopped working. Since one of her main purposes was to look for Soviet submarines, she went back to port for repairs. When drivers examined the hull of the ship where the sonar equipment was located, they discovered long, jagged scars in the rubber coating. Many of the scars still had something that looked like giant claws hooked into them. An analysis indicated that these were most likely claws from squid arms but they were four times the size of any squid claws that had been seen before. None of this is disputed. All of this is actually legit. And so now we have a very strange situation. How big would a squid have to be to decide to attack a Navy destroyer and then to damage that destroyer? 
If the squid claws were four times the size of any previously seen, would that make the squid four times the size of the squids we know about? If that was the case, we'd be looking at a 130-foot-long squid that weighed three tons. Now, just because the hooks were four times as large, that doesn't mean that the whole squid would be four times as large. There might be an undiscovered species of squid that has particularly oversized claws in its arms. But that would still mean that there was a species of squid large enough to see a Navy destroyer and think, I'm going to take that thing and succeed in damaging it with outsized claws on its arms. Yeah, it's remarkable. Now, that's a good point about bringing up some more recent sightings. You get one from the 70s. Do we have any stuff like from last year? Like, is are, are there more recent sightings than... I mean, the 70s still feels now like a long time ago. That's half a century ago. How common or uncommon are these? Well, we don't really know because there's so much we don't know about the deep ocean. But what we have done in the last few years is we've been able to uh, get footage of live giant squids in their natural habitat for the first time ever. We've even got footage of a young colossal squid basically attacking a fishing boat where they were trying to reel in uh, a big fish and the colossal squid decided that it was going to take that big fish from the sailors. So we do finally have footage of these things and we know now that they do seem to be very active predators. One thing that was quite interesting is that one of the ways they lured the giant squid in, this, here's, some, here's some, uh, some tea about the deep sea for you. There's a kind of jellyfish which uses bioluminescence. It can light up. And what they noticed about this jellyfish was that it would light up when it was being attacked by other fish. And the scientists were like, why would that help you? <laughs> You're being attacked by other fish. Why would lighting up help you? Now they know. The jellyfish lights up when it's being attacked by a fish because that attracts giant squids. And then the hope Whoa. is that the giant squid comes, eats the fish that's attacking you. So the scientists mimicked that jellyfish distress signal went down in the ocean with a with like a probe, lit it up, and sure enough, out came the giant squid. Wow. Amazing. So the thing is, giant squids totally exist. They're already pretty impressive at like 45 feet long. There's maybe, of all of the cryptids that we've talked about, this is the one that I still hold out the most hope for, that maybe there's something even bigger down there. Hmm. Maybe. See, I do have a question because you said this is being recorded in a festive season. And so I have a festive question for you. All right. We've talked about a lot of cryptids. Loch Ness Monster, yeah. Mothman, yeah. Giant yeah. Squid, Kraken, yeah. uh, Sasquatch. Yeah. If you were going to be killed by a cryptid, which would be extremely yeah. on brand for us, mm -hmm. which of those cryptids would you want to get killed by? Huh. Um... I mean, certainly the giant squid would be the most dramatic, I think. That toothed uh, tongue thing really got to you. Uh, yeah, but it's so scary that I, I don't know. Um, I would feel bad for the uh, Bigfoot because they're kind of they're kind of sweet. And then, you know, it would like get shot or something as a result of killing me. Maybe uh, Mothman, I think. I feel like it would be sufficiently scary, but not quite as scary as, as being dragged under the ocean by tentacles. Oh. Yeah, uh, that's the worst one. I 100% I, I agree. Of those, well, how four, about you? I want to get who, who killed by Mothman as well. 
I don't okay, want to get okay. dragged onto the water. So we gotta go to we gotta go to New Jersey, right? Uh, we have to go to West Virginia. West Virginia. West All Virginia. Right. So if, we have to loiter about in West Virginia. In Point Pleasant, if, West if that's Virginia. That's how we're gonna. Okay. Well, because look at it this way. Like you said, to get dragged under the water and crushed and then bitten by a beak and then scraped by a tongue and then squished through an esophagus past a, a squid brain, I don't want that in my life. No. The, the Loch Ness Monster, I feel like I'm st- there's, it's still water. I'm still also drowning. It's like I'm getting killed yeah. by a monster and also drowning. That's, that's unfair. Yeah. <laughs> One death at a time, please. Yeah. I mean, Sasquatch Bigfoot... That seems like, even though I know you consider him a gentle giant because you've seen Harry and the Hendersons. Yes. That's a lot of muscle. I feel like he's going to rip off all my limbs before I die. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I I can imagine that. He's going to beat me to death with my own leg. (laughs) But Mothman, I feel like Mothman will pick me up and carry me up into the sky and drop me. So that's a pretty quick death and also a, a bit of a ride first. Uh, it might, that actually might change my mind. Well, how are you expecting uh, Mothman to kill you? Like stab you? Yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, something something stabby, beaky, cly kind of thing. I don't like the idea of being whisked up into the sky and dropped. Oh, come on. Like, feels, if you're going to go anyway, that's the way to go. I guess, I guess, yeah. I still Whee! stick with Mothman. Splat. Dear listeners, if you would like to be killed by a specific cryptid, do email us. That's right. Everybody email us and let us know. Which cryptid would you like to be killed by? And then maybe we'll do a whole episode on it.